Welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that MB Games' board game of the Crystal Maze had the players competing against each other rather than working together. I don't really see how that works. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember that no one else ever seems to are, it says here, generic creatives, <laughs> Vicky Gregorich and Jeff Lewis. Vicky, Jeff, what are you up to and where can we find it? So I'm currently working on a video game called Switchblade, which is a 5v5 mobile-like vehicular shooter, which is out now on PlayStation 4 and PC Steam Early Access. And I don't do anything. Well, that's not strictly true, but I'm (laughs) hoping that we don't do anything with your first choice rather than design a game based on it, (laughs) as this haunted many a bank holiday for me. Anyway... Let's just have a clip of it. Kit Mumbo and Wene are at the 2,000 kilometer mark. The friction between these two great personalities is heating up to the flashpoint. One of them must make a move. Me and the course, there is nothing else but Kit Mumbo. I have to beat Wene, even though he is a dreamboat. Don't throw it all away, Rene. Okay, well that clip did actually end, which I used to be convinced that this cartoon wouldn't do. But Vicky, what was Animal Olympics? Well, until you told me that's what it was called, I didn't actually know what it was. But what it was, and the only thing I actually remember about it, was a love story between two marathon runners. One of whom was an antelope of some sort, and the other was a cheetah of some sort. And one was a man and one was a woman. And randomly, as they started running, they hated each other because they were an antelope and a cheetah. And then by the end of it, they fell in love. I have some vague recollection of other, more sort of silly stories of other animals competing and doing stupid things. But it's literally the feeling I remember. I don't actually remember anything else about it. But I can picture the two lovebirds. I was about to do air quotes there. A bit pointless. I do remember the two lovebirds having a genuinely romantic love story mm. through it. And nearly nothing else about it. Well, it's funny you should say that, because that's kind of how I remember it was. There was this vague love story, and at that age, I wasn't particularly thinking, ooh, a love story, how exciting. The rest of it was no plot at all. Just, as you say, events where things like, you know, I don't know, a GNU was going in the shop pot or something, and went, I'm going to throw it, why, yeah, yeah, I have not let go, and would then win the long jump by flying off with the shop pot somehow. But I didn't enjoy this at all. It was, as we touched on in one of the previous appearances with Ben Baker, it was one of those cartoons that I don't necessarily think was made for children. It was made for adults to tell children, this is what you like. You know, it wasn't quite Hong Kong Philly or anything, but there were quite a few of these. And Jeff, I'm going to bring you in because I can remember a few that probably appealed to you in this vein, like the Ralph Bashke Lord of the Rings or Wizards, things like that. I think I think the Lord Lord of the Rings was p- particularly joyless cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> I quite liked it. <laughs> it filled up many a Boxing Day. But, <laughs> but I, I, I've got a I've got a strong feeling that that Animal Olympics must have been from the same stable as the Raccoons and Cyril Snare, because there was something about the animation of it which seemed very similar to that. And I do remember at first, Raccoons was a series of specials before it became like a weekly show. Yes, it was. very similar to Animal Olympics. So I'd I'd be surprised if they weren't from the same animation company. And does it have a very distinctive theme tune, Raccoons? Because you're saying that, my brain's tickled. It did have a very distinctive uh, kind of early 80s orchestral kids... TV theme. It didn't go ra ra raccoons. <laughs> no, no, I don't think no. it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, funny enough, both of those points suggested you should bring them up because I looked into the background of Animal Olympics. It was from 1980, although I'm convinced I saw it in 1979. But that's that's by the by. That's to do with moving house and stuff like that. And I could be completely wrong. It was NBC and Warner Brothers. So. Possible there could be a link with the, you know, the animators. God, in my head, that could have been French. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Voiced voiced by Billy Crystal, Gilda Radner and Harry Shearer. And this is the weird thing. The music, which I remember finding quite bland and exciting at the time, was essentially by 10cc. I think it's three of them and one wasn't there. I I, I prefer to think it was on holiday rather than say, I'm not doing that. So 7.5cc. (laughs) But what's weirder still is, like, the album was original songs by them, but in the cartoon, apparently, this is apparently 100% true, they also do 
I don't know if I can go through this again, originally by Frank Zappa, <laughs> on one of my turns by Pink Floyd. Oh my god. And what? What were they doing in this cartoon? More evidence that it wasn't made with children in mind, I'm saying. <laughs> if I picked a cartoon that everyone's going to remember, so I might as well have picked Mulan. <laughs> I really don't think people, if they remember it, they remember it sort of. Existing, maybe being on in the background when you know all the relatives were around on Boxing Day. It's you're not exactly sort of confronted with walls of DVDs of it in every charity shop. That would be quite terrifying based on what I can remember of the look of it. (laughs) But I think the reason I never quite liked it was it came very soon after. I think we might have got this in 1979, or it was a couple of years earlier, but in those days, cartoons took up bit longer to come over but there was Hanna-Barbera did Scooby's All-Star Laugh Olympics oh god where I think it was shown as part of Swap Shop all the Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters well within reason I mean Godzilla wasn't in it but they were all divided up into Olympic teams doing sort of wacky racer style zany games against each other but the weird thing was there must have been some rights problem with Dick Dastardly and Muttley because they had the Dread Baron, who was basically Dick Dastardly with a different hat. And weirdly, they co-opted Mumbly, who wasn't evil. He was like a super intelligent Mutley, who was a kind of Columbo parody. <laughs> had a mad sort of high-tech car. But they were the villains with Daisy Mayhem, who was basically a kind of bird's nest her evil southern gal. And they were always conspiring against like Scooby-Doo's Goody Two Shoes team, or whatever they were called. But I think that's because I was used to this probably subpar if you watch it now, the zany thing on a Saturday morning, and then there's something where animals are being sort of serious and humanistic. And like, no. I, I think there's a strong argument for mashing that cartoon up with Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> Scooby against Waluigi. Well, Waluigi. That would be great. <laughs> Those sort of things. That would be excellent. I've well, never that... even heard of Mumbly. But I can imagine Mumbly and Zink make, uh, Link making an e- excellent team. Would that make a good game, Jeff? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to go completely in the, I think, the opposite direction. Your next choice, which at the time of writing, I've no idea what I'm going to use here. So <laughs> let's just see what I say afterwards. When you look back on War and Peace, um, which I thought was one of the highlights of, 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 of the year, how do you feel about it? Was it everything you hoped for? I was absolutely delighted with it. I think in retrospect, maybe if I'd had my choice, I would have done eight hours instead of six. Um, But six hours was what I decided on in the first place. And um, I I couldn't have been more happy about the acting and the direction and the whole show. Okay, Jeff, given that I don't know what, I'm going to put in there. There's a chance that I might put one of the TV shows written by the writer of this in there. So we'll just get straight into it. What was Conrad's War? Conrad's War was a book that I read when I was 10 or 11 years old, which is by Andrew Davies, the TV playwright. I had no idea that he was a TV playwright when I read that book at a very young age. It was only years later that I connected the name on the front of the book with the guy who who, who became kind of a bit of a star of of television writing in in the 80s and 90s. And it's a children's book that I, I really identified with at the age of 11 or 12 years old. I think for a lot of guys who were kind of born in the early 70s, you kind of grew up with World War II still around. And like there were so many toys and so many films, Action Man and Airfix kits. And it was still very much part of the zeitgeist because it was really only 30, 35 years since it had been around. But like the... The, the psychic wounds of it had gone and it was just like the paraphernalia and the adventure of it that was left to, to, to a boy in, in, in the mid to late 70s. So I think me, like lots of little boys, were kind of like quite obsessed with the, with World War II, but we only kind of like saw, saw the airfix kits and the action men and the little green soldiers and the adventures in the films and, and, and didn't really have any sort of idea of, of, of how terrible it was. And Conrad's War is about a little boy who is very much like that and his kind of obsessed with World War Two, and finds that his obsession turns into a sort of a mag- magical real- realist reality where he, he increasingly has more, more lucid dreams about him and his pet dog and his dad being uh, the crew on a Lancaster bomber going on a, on a raid over Germany. And that eventually becomes reality and they get sucked through time in, into World War Two, And 
he finds it adventurous at first, but then he finds it very frightening, and they get shot down, and they have to kind of try and make their way through uh, Germany. It's not dissimilar to the musical we saw last week called Eugenius. I guess it is quite similar. <laughs> Where a young man imagines um, a superhero coming to life, and then he actually comes to life. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Sorry. I think they end up in Colditz and have to make a glider and escape. Um, and, and then the, the room is very vividly the scene where, where he gets separated from his dad and his dog. And, and he gets captured by the Germans and he starts to blend into the fantasy of, of a German boy of about that age and the kind of the brainwashing of, of having to have, having been in the Hitler youth and it is it's, you know it's a kid's story and it's light and it's adventurous but it's, it's got some interesting points about the fact that even though what we were all seeing as little boys of that age was the, the fun and the paraphernalia of World War II that there, there was another side to it and I think it was one of my first experiences of reading a bit of literature and sort of feeling a little bit embarrassed and sort of thinking well actually maybe some of my, my obsessions aren't, aren't, aren't actually that reasonable and, and there is something more, more serious behind and then of course Star Wars came along and made wars war fun again <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's the interesting thing about young adult fiction it's so big now isn't it you know Harry Potter started this thing and um, and it's led into sort of the Hunger Games and those sort of books but all of us will have had one of those books in, in our youth but our our choices were more limited I guess it would be finding that book that may made the difference to you you know so for lots of girls that's Judy Bloom books and it sounds like this was that for you Jeff yes maybe maybe that's a good good analogy actually. yeah the yeah. book that kind of turns you into slightly turns you into being an adult yeah 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 of course the first book I ever read was Charles Manson's life story so <laughs> that, that tells you a lot about the path I've taken <laughs> I think it's interesting that immediately after this kind of, in a sense, defining book for boys, and like you say, dealt with quite, in a sense, adult themes Mm. couched in a sort of children's themes kind of way, they then went on to create Marmalade Atkins, who's the complete opposite, who I recently, because I got both series of uh, Educating Marmalade and Danger Marmalade that work in a sale, I hadn't seen them since they were on. I still loved them as much as I did mm. when I was a kid. That's interesting. That was quite a defining thing for me because it wasn't wasn't the usual stereotype of the naughty school kid. When you watch it now, it's quite obviously a kid who said, you know, who's not saying tee hee hee, I'm going to put this bucket of water over the door for when teacher comes in. It's actually a kid who's saying, I reject the things that adults can't explain to me, therefore I will act up. No, and that was a defining thing for me. Really. No, it's abs- you're absolutely right. But I think in, it echoes a lot of what Jeff's saying about how you, when you're going from being an adolescent to, to maybe into that teenage year where you, you don't know stuff and it's the first time you start realising that you're not the centre of the universe. Marmalade Atkins is brilliant because for a little girl, little girls have lots more constraints on what they can be and not be. And to see such an anarchist character as a girl on television... Marmalade Atkins was absolutely fantastic for most girls. And a lot of girls would have gone, oh, I can be something that isn't one of one of the six or seven things I can be. Do you know what I mean? That's been defined for me at this age. Because she was just who she was and she was a force of nature. And that was quite the thing. I'm delighted. I really wish you'd said that up front, that <laughs> the man that wrote that book also wrote Marmalade Atkins. He learns me new every day. <laughs> Swing back to Conrad's War. I mean, do you think there's a contrast between, you know, I was bought all those comics like the Hotspur, and the tiger were, you know, every other strip. If it wasn't about sporting prowess, it was about somebody in the Second World War and they're, they're seemingly, you know, the strips that... Even, I say the strips went on longer than the Second World War. The individual instalments went on longer than the Second World War. And it's always like, I won't make it, chaps. You'll have to go on without me. No! We won't leave you. You know, a big full frame as one character saying that in a speech bubble with jagged lines around it. But was it kind of a counterpoint to that? Was it kind of saying... Be careful with your obsessions because they're not necessarily sort of rooted in reality. I think so, and that you're kind of obsessing about some about something which you don't you don't really understand. You're mm. only looking at the surface of it, which is exciting to a little boy, all of the machines yeah. and the adventure. But yeah, I think it was trying to point that out. And to be fair, I think a lot of kids' comics from from the mid seventies, Battle, which famously had Char- Charlie's War, and it was always drawing the point that war is grim and does have a dark side and and I think that it it's easy to kind of dismiss a lot of kids entertainment to do with War 2 at that point that only glamorise it but I think, I think Conrad's War probably wasn't the only thing that was kind of trying to make that point as well One thing I was quite surprised to find about Conrad's War though was I just assumed it would have been on Jack and Ori at some point and it wasn't that's exactly the sort of book that you'd think it'd be on but was there ever a sequel to it? I can't find any 
No, I, 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 I never found any trace of sequels. And it was obviously not averse to writing sequels because got several <laughs> yeah, ones in Atkins books. But no, I think it, maybe it was just a bit of a one-off. I also think it's interesting that he's kind of puts himself in it because mm. he, 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 the dad of Conrad is a television writer and he kind of makes jokes about the fact that his dad writes um, mm-hmm. plays for television about uh, uh, naked ladies and I guess that's what <laughs> we Andrew Davis was writing in, 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 in the late 70s and early 80s. Well, he did that again in a very peculiar practice because he actually turns up as a character as a writer who owes some money to the BBC, which <laughs> was how a very peculiar practice came about, was like, in lieu of paying them back, he was like, I'll write you a series. <laughs> and so, like, he actually turns up as himself in the middle of the story. <laughs> so he did, did do that quite often. OK, well, we're staying in the world of literature for your next choice. Again, no idea what I'm going to use here. <laughs> so we'll just have something and then we'll plough straight into it. Now, this is a very different proposition to Comrade Wall. In some ways, ah. Oh. <laughs> I've made friends with John Wagner, um, the creator of Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog, when I was working for DC Thompson. And he got in touch with me. Like He was living in London, I was still in Dundee. He got in touch to say that they were bringing out a new comic, which was to be 2000 AD. And would I like to have a go at writing some stuff or whatever for it? So... I wrote a couple of scripts which were accepted and that was just the start of my writing career. Okay, Jeff, what was The Last American? The Last American was a limited comic series that came out in the early 1990s, which was part of a wave of of limited edition comics that were coming around at that time, done by 2000 AD artists and writers who finally got a chance to to do work in America, kind of based off the success of of Watchmen, which was done by Alan Moore and, and Dave Gibbons who were both 2008 creatives for, for a long time. Uh, but The Last American was written by Alan Grant and John Wagner, who wrote Judge Dredd for a huge amount of time. They neither of them created Judge Dredd, but they were basically written Judge Dredd for about 20 years. And Mike McMahon, who was a very influential uh, 2008 artist, who really, although he didn't create Judge Dredd, helped define Judge Dredd. And this was probably the only really big strip that Mike McMahon drew for American comics that I can remember. And both Alan Grant and John Wagner did go on to be successful in American comics because they were a Batman for a long time. But um, The Last American is quite a quirky cartoon strip, very much in the, t- in the 2018 mentality, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but I've never found anybody else who's, who's ever read it. And it's not really been heavily reprinted. And it was about a uh, colonel in the American army who t- committed some sort of never clearly defined crime (laughs) and for his punishment he's put into a suspended animation by the president to be awoken in the case of of nuclear war had to be the 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 last representative of the american state who will find whatever state america is is in after a nuclear war and ensure that uh, american values are, are reinstated and this indeed happens at the start of the, the comic, is him being uh, woken up by three war robots who have been left to look after him. And they're very 2008-ish characters. They're, they're like uh, cool and bizarre, sarcastic robots. And, and he, he's, he's quite a cynical guy as well. And they get into a super tank that they've been given, which is very 2008-ish as well. <laughs> and they head out into post-apocalypse America to, to uh, re-establish the American way of life. And then through uh, about uh, 120 pages and four issues, they get they then proceed to find no trace of life whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And it basically becomes this this bleak uh, uh, commentary on the fact that nobody would actually survive a severe nuclear war. Nobody would be left. And there's constantly like, oh, has he found the town where um, there's going to be a, 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 a bunch of survivors there who are holed up? and are fighting over resources and he goes there and no it's just a radio that's been left on <laughs> if he goes to the um the deep the deep coal mines in, in a certain state and it's all on kind of the um the east coast of america kind of new england and places like that if he goes to like that if he goes to pennsylvania and he goes to the uh, deep coal mines where people have survived there and he goes to the deep coal mines and the coal seams have been set set on fire by the nuclear wars and have been burning for 40 years so no there's no luck there and and it's just fantastic sort of subversion of that idea of the post-apocalyptic 
adventure that, that you know this 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 brave guy with all this fantastic kit is gonna gonna have adventures and what what he what we find is just nothingness and bleakness <laughs> do you know what it sounds like to me just to summarize uh, demolition man meets the road oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it is very much the road for kids actually oh is it oh my god <laughs> Noticed that the main character is called Ulysses S. Pilgrim. <laughs> Why do they keep giving them those terrible names? <laughs> it's kind of nominative determination as well. Did they really wake up thinking, oh, hang on, why have I been transported to be the founder of the new America and I'm a general as well? What's what's happening? What, why me? <laughs> I mean, it's okay calling him Ulysses, but why Ulysses S? Do you know what I mean? Why couldn't it be Ulysses P? Ulysses P. Pilgrim. Or Ulysses P. Pilgrim. <laughs> so, Nobody would ever know. <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, it's a beautifully illustrated. And uh, Mike McMahon kind of started off with kind of a fairly sort of street, street-laced, action-packed comic book style. But throughout the 80s and 90s, his style just got weirder and weirder and weirder. And it was still very uh, good comic book art, very easy to see what was going on. But the, the people would just become more stylized. And it's almost like Picasso-like sometimes, uh, the drawings. It's like really strange, distorted faces. So I think maybe between the incredibly bleak subject matter and the, the fairly abstract art for an adventure, a strip that looks like it's going to be an adventure, um, it probably no, they just, just didn't find an audience. And I, I, mm. I've never seen any sign of it being reprinted. And, and they, reprint, really, they reprint everything in comics. So yeah. it, must, it must have been quite, quite the flop. But I thought, I thought it was very, very interesting and unusual comic book. Well, I, one reason could be, I did read, this is on a Wikipedia page, so citation mm. needed, that Wagner and Grant fell out while they were writing oh, it. So that's interesting. I don't know if that's got any bearing on mm. it, whether they, it's kind of like a sort of oasis thing. Oh, <laughs> they won't go back yeah, to it because yeah. of swearing well this, swearing well that. Or, I mean, I guess the difficulty... As Noel and Liam would say. I think the difficulty they would have had from a creative point of view is they, they would be forced to jump the shark by finding someone, wouldn't they? And well, probably trying to resist that. There's a tiny hint at the end that he, he thinks he finds some tiny little trace of life, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, after uh, despite being such a stoic character, by the end of it, he's just at the point of suicide, and he just finds some tiny little indication of life. Yeah. So it's like a very faint trace of hope right at the end of it. I mean, it is. But, that's a really interesting idea. Stephen King explores that idea in The Mist. Mm-hmm. Like, spoiler alert for the book, but at the end of the book, the man, the main, the main guy, kind of hears something on the radio and the word could be a town that he's near or it could be the word hope mm. and that sounds quite similar you know that's that's yeah. a that's a book where you where nobody wins nobody survives yeah. and but it's it does speak very well to the idea of survivor hope and that's how people keep going so it's, it's quite interesting mm. i wouldn't mind seeing that but you think you can get it anywhere no i've got it so you've got it i think best not then <laughs> you can read it out to me you can also always just watch austin powers which is more or less the same story <laughs> it's even got the robots in it so, yeah, yeah. 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 I would say another, another possibility for, for it maybe, maybe I don't know why, uh, why it didn't find an audience or it is like a classic comic book thing that the cover is often much more action packed than, than the yeah. inside and the covers were particularly action packed with him like leaping and firing yeah. machine guns <laughs> with his giant robot, war robot companions firing giant speakers in the background he's just doing it just... for shits and giggles <laughs> <laughs> Sort of satire in it, like like that guy Bush did back when you went to suspended animation. Or... I think I guess who would have been president at that time? Probably Bush Senior, or mm. maybe the first couple of years of Clinton. But it was completely in the 2008 kind of voice <laughs> of you know sarcastic and and very cynical mm. about Amer- American lifestyle. Uh, a way of life in general, which is, you know, so actually, although I love 2008, it's quite sanctimonious that all these British and Scottish writers are just like constantly, they never critique Britain very much, they're just constantly <laughs> critiquing America. <laughs> okay, well, I'm wondering what critique there'll be in your next choice. We're still in the library, but with some books I've never heard of, and again, we're not doing well for clips here, we've got no idea what we're going to use, so. Sorry. <laughs> let's just. Mooi, binnenkort komen wij naar jullie theater toe. Met de grijze schipper, dikke druif, Marinka en Pangetootje. De kleine kapitein, de avontuurlijkste voorstelling ooit voor iedereen vanaf zes jaar. Kijk op www.mijnkleinekapitein.nl En bestel je kaarten nu. Oké, ik denk ik zeg dit right. Vicky, who was Paul Beagle? 
Well, Paul Beagle was a writer who, up until this morning, I thought was Swedish. Um, He's not, he's Dutch. He wrote lots and lots and lots and lots of kind of fantasy dwarf books. Not, Not books about having fantasies about dwarfs. Sort of your Lord of the Rings type thing. And I can remember as a kid, not growing out of Roald Dahl so much as feeling the need to do something different, listen to something, read something different to Roald Dahl, and having a mobile library near me and delving into the children's section and finding these Paul Beagle books. And I can distinctly remember picking up this book, literally because of its title, and I appreciate how puerile and childish it was. I was 11. Called The Dwarves of Nosegay. And literally picking it because of the word gay in the title. But actually finding it, I can remember being really enchanted by its realm. And I think it was the first book I ever read that was genuinely not in the world I live in. There was no real world stuff about it. It was a complete fantasy land. And I'm not a massive fan of fantasy fiction. I hate Lord of the Rings, actually. But I can remember being absolutely, completely sitting within that world and finding it really fascinating and really odd and really cute. And I remember reading lots and lots of his books, and then I couldn't tell you very much about them, actually, now. But what I do remember is, as I've gotten older and I read a lot of kind of Scandi horror and Scandi crime, I really like those sort of books, is that feeling of cold bleakness and the idea that everything is kind of very stark and everything is quite raw, and that being in a children's book. So it was somewhere between Roald Dahl and, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo, um, in terms of its style. But they were very interesting, little odd books. I did see one in a charity shop and couldn't resist. So I bought it. And I wish I'd bought it today so I could tell you the title of the one I bought, but I can't remember. And trying to read it and just going, I don't understand any of the words. (laughs) It wasn't in Dutch. (laughs) It was in English. uh, And it was absolutely unreadable. (laughs) So I'm not sure he's a well-loved children's author at all. <laughs> well, are these sort of fantasy characters kind of a regular feature in the Scandi serials? <laughs> it's very odd link you draw, but I did make a note of some of the titles. I did pick out the Dwarves and Nose Game. Yeah, which was bit. the first one I read. I can remember distinctly laughing my head off in the library and going, but, I'm clearly <laughs> going to read that book. <laughs> there was also The King of the Copper Mountains, mm. The Seven Times Search, and The Elephant Party. Now... Did any of these loosening in translation, or does that accurately reflect the contents? You know, it is it is a really interesting question, that, because I've, as an adult, I've read a lot of Primo Levi books, and they're absolutely fantastic. He's an Italian author, and some of his books, when you read them, are dreadful, like, hard to read, but actually the books themselves aren't, it's the translation is poor, and I do wonder if the same thing has happened with Paul Beagle, that he has he's written beautiful books and they've been translated really poorly so some of them are unreadable um i believe the copper mountains one is has been pretty popular and is the one if anybody said paul beagle will have read i don't remember anything about it but i know i read it yeah i think it may have been because certainly i know that if you buy a primo levy book you buy certain translations you don't and you go Mm. and look at the translator and that you get a much better experience so maybe it is true But it could just be that the world of fantasy is not something I'm massively interested in anymore. But for me, the similarities are definitely about the bleakness, the starkness, the the fact that everything everything that's there is very real and there isn't a lot of fluff and fauna. Do you know what I mean? There's not a Mm. lot of softness to make it nice. There's no sort of talc around the edges or anything. I'm making all these phrases up. (laughs) (laughs) They are stories where the, the, the characters are having to do something to survive and live and their their communities are important for a reason, not just because it's nice to be in them. When you read a lot of Scandi horror, you get that similar atmosphere. So I, I don't think it's translated well into enjoying the fantasy genre, but it has translated into enjoying something stark or something raw in my reading. Going back to the literal translations, I think you could have something there. Because I, mean, I always think about, you know, the, the Scott Walker translations of Jacques Brel songs, you know, they're really sort of dark, funny, you know, mm. funeral tango, Amsterdam, and so on. But also, there's another well-known translation of a Jacques Brel song, which is Seasons in the Sun. <laughs> and, you know, speaking a bit of French, you know, listen to the original, Le Moribund by Jacques Brel, and you think... How did somebody get seasons in the sun from that? <laughs> yeah. There was sucker in song ever written. So people can be misrepresented by translation. They certainly can, they certainly can. And the thing it makes me think is um, there's a word in Dutch called gazellig, which I've 
the pronunciation I've absolutely hammered there. But that word doesn't have a direct translation anywhere in the world. And it's just kind of the feeling of, you know, being as one. Dutch people are gazellic. They they sit together and they are, they know they are Dutch and they are together and it's not a thing. And there's a Russian word that Jeff likes because it refers to me, which is talking a lot about nothing quite a lot of time. What's that word? Pochamucha. Person who asks many questions. That's right. <laughs> person asks many questions. We want to get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, definitely steering away from that. <laughs> We're still in the library for your next choice. Unfortunately, I have a clip this time. You won't Yay! believe it. So let's have a listen to this. Some planet in the galaxy must, by definition, be the toughest, meanest, nastiest of all. If Pyrus wasn't it, it was an awfully good approximation. Jason Dinault sprawled in soft luxury on the couch. A large frosty stein held limply in one hand. His other hand rested casually on a pillow. The gun behind the pillow was within easy reach of his fingers. In his line of work, he never took chances. Okay, well that was an extract from the first of Harry Harrison's Death World series. So, Jeff, a lot of people know Harry Harrison. They might not know Death World, so tell us a bit more about it. Well, Harrison, I guess, is most famous for writing Silent Green. I discovered Harry Harrison through the fact that they adapted a series of his books for 2008 called the Stainless Steel Rat series, and that got me into reading his books. And I discovered that he wrote a, a series of a short series of books called the Death World series, which was about a, a, a fairly stock space adventurer. And in the first series of books, he, he is hired by the leader of a militaristic commercial operation which has got a city on a jungle planet to come and help them with what they're trying to do, which is to let their city be able to operate, even though it's being constantly assorted by the this exotic jungle wildlife of the planet. So he goes to the planet. It's an extremely hostile environment. He has to have a lot of training before he can start to explore the planet. On his first mission out, he gets separated from this uh, military-industrial complex society, which is trying to um, drain resources from the planet. Ends up in the jungle, where he uh, discovers that the primitive people who are living in the jungle, that the people in the city know about, aren't in fact as primitive as they seem. And they in fact have a sympathetic relationship with the, the vicious, weird animals and have a psychic link with them and he organises them into an assault onto the city full of the more uh, military-industrial people, which is, of course, the plot of the night, uh, successful 2009 film Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and as much as we like James Cameron, plagiarist. <laughs> well, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. No. no. In fact, I find it quite interesting that, you know, this book that I read when I was probably 13 or 14 years old, James Cameron, who I'm guessing is probably in his late 50s or early 60s, so he's not much older mm-hmm. than me, probably read when he was in his mid or late 20s. And there was a lot of science fiction around that time, which was still pulp and still adventure themed, but had kind of eco themes to it. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. American science fiction writers at that time were kind of part of the, the hippie tech yeah, so you're looking at kind of silent running and Soil yeah, Green is in that, running, that realm kind, as kind well. Of, kind of trying to bring these ideas which were just emerging about climate change, which which did kind of come, the Green Movement does come, come yeah. kind of come from that hippie tech Californian movement. And I think Harry Harrison and other writers, American sci-fi writers at, at that time were probably part of that movement mm. as well. And I think there are other books which kind of explore very similar themes and have also got a huge battle at the end, mm. which James Cameron probably read as well and you know there's no doubt about it that's very very similar series of plot <laughs> yeah. and you know whether consciously or unconsciously he clearly was was influenced by it but i think it's interesting that this kind of wave of science fiction books which was around for a certain amount of time would have had an influence on this massive film director mm-hmm. one of the biggest film directors on earth and he had, had an influence on me too and I, mean, I, I read a lot of those books the other thing like from what you were saying about it though like even just like your sort of very general description of it was that how visual that would be it's this jungle world with yeah. this two tier thing and things attacking from the outside I'm gesticulating a lot here not helpful a person like James Cameron who does very well at translating very visual 
things in a very visual way. Yeah. Obviously, he's a filmmaker, but he he's very you know brave with that sort of stuff, and mm. he he breaks barriers with that sort of stuff. Has taken a book and being able to tra- technically translate it onto film is yeah, really quite yeah. amazing. And only um, really only someone like James Cameron could have done that. Yeah, you know who could. You know, he wants to tell simple adventure stories, but he wants to tell them on a, on a, on a, on a, on a massive scale. scale. Yeah. And it, I think it could only, they couldn't have made a film of Death World in 1978 or whenever it was written, because the technology just wouldn't have allowed it. And yeah. I think Cameron did actually write Avatar in the 90s. I remember reading about it in an interview that he gave with 2018 in the 90s, when, when probably around when Terminator 2 came out. Mm. Terminator 2 is full of influences as well. And you remember him talking in the article about uh, you know, he freely admitted how how the um, the T one thousand, the liquid metal one, was influenced by by things that he'd seen in Japanese horror mangas, oh, yeah. where there were like people who could morph into swords and, and, and <laughs> yeah. uh, swords and stabbing weapons. You know, he's just that kind of artist. You know, all artists are influenced by other artists, yeah. but he's, he's he's fairly willing to sort of say, yeah, mm. yeah, I was, yeah, I was affected by that. Um, and so he clearly, you know, wanted to make that film for a very long time and kind of had to wait until technology mm. allowed him to do it. And I think Avatar really was kind of part of this whole whole wave of blockbuster films, which has been going on since 2000 now, which is stuff that has actually been around for a very long time, which would make great subject matter, mm. but technology wasn't there to do it. And I think the first thing, that the first really big illustration of that was The Lord of the Rings, which was probably... 50 to 60 years old when Peter Jackson started making films of it and you know lots of people talked about making Lord of the Rings films for the whole period of time that uh, since that book came out David Lean talked about doing it fantastically I'm sure you've read about this and the mm. Beatles talked about doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it was completely really, realistically completely imp- imp- impossible to visualise that until until CGI came along and I think Avatar is part of that as well that you couldn't really Visualize the kind of world that not on film anyway. In mm. film yeah. from these these kind of eco adventure science fiction books, which which seem to have a popularity in in the late seventies, and I think all of these books were written in the late seventies, and I discovered them in the library in in, in the eighties mm. as, as a ten or twelve year old, and then you know we're in the middle of that phase now because you know that, that's what the MCU is, that's what the Marvel universe is. There's a, there's nothing in those comics which in in those films which hasn't been around for mm. for forty or sixty years. Um, but you could not have put it on film in any sort of appreciable way until until now, until the technology is so easy to use mm. and, and so powerful that you can visualise yeah. something like Infinity War. And for people who want to make other people feel bad, when they go, oh, Avatar is just Pocahontas in space, <laughs> no, it isn't, it's Death, it's death. World. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to go back on two of the earlier points, I've got a couple of interesting observations, which, you know, you are right, there was a, that kind of eco-sci-fi thing around that time, which I was really surprised to see a couple of years back in an exhibition, like, of the sort of 60s underground press and counterculture, couple of editions of an American thing, I think, from about 1969 to the early 70s, called the Whole Earth Catalogue, which is like a sort of listings of its mostly sort of farming implements and their genuine 100% legal generic seeds. (laughs) (laughs) They are not illegal at all. But there's loads of adverts for early computers, you know, like early Apple computers, I was saying, hey, dude, don't hassle it, it'll do your computations for you. Mass communication will become possible. And... It's weird that computers were originally a hippie thing. Yeah. Mm. They got co-opted yeah. by business, but yeah. part of my theory about that is a bit like the Beatles and Apple Records. That when hippies realised that their business model wasn't working out, they suddenly bought suits and they're like, <laughs> hello, I am a Steve Jobs, stroke Bill Gates. I mean, it is yeah. very much how, it's very interesting how all of that stuff kind of echoes with what you call a lot of libertarianism now, mm. but it would be what we as liberal people would consider the acceptable <laughs> face of libertarianism. Mm. But then when you look at what Steve Jobs became and how mm. terribly he treated his own family and how ridiculous he was when he got sick, do you know what I mean? You kind of go, yeah, it's not always good, is it? Do you know what I mean? You can, you can admire the principles, but you can't live by them. Not not in the long term. Well, pulling a bit slightly back, <laughs> slightly back from that, my other observation was that I kind of discovered Harry Harrison through... I think it was in the mid-80s, there was a Radio 4 adaptation of Build a Galactic Hero. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. the interesting thing about that was, you know, it's about a kind of man who's not really suitable for the role that gets co-opted into basically military service on a travelling spaceship and constantly runs up against rules and regulations. Now, is that reminding you? 
I'm not saying, you know, there's direct correlation, but of some maybe of a sitcom that appeared a couple of years <laughs> after that. Are there, are there any similarities? Are there any space called directives and all that? I, <laughs> I will hear nothing said against Red Wolf. I'm not saying anything Not about, even series nine. No, I'm, I'm not saying anything against the first two series. That, that's different. That is interesting because I, I read Bill's acting here and I would find it difficult to see. Which whether that or Red Dwarf started first, but if you're if you if what you're saying is right, then it did start a little bit before it did come out a little bit before Red Dwarf. Well, started. it's it's an either or thing. Uh, I'm going to say that's the safest thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to your last choice now, which is a TV program, and brilliantly again, I've got a clip of this. Hooray! <laughs> Secret Cabaret, it was so much fun. It was this, well, it was a cabaret on the television, but it was kind of on the darker side of cabaret. So there was less of that kind of singing and more sort of people lying, uh, like fakirs putting needles through their skin and stuff. But it was a show primarily, I think he's, his name is Simon Drake and he he's a fairly well-respected magician in magician circles. So he's the Daniel Kitson, I guess, of magicians. He ran a show, I think it ran for about two series, um, but they were very punchy on Channel 4, sort of quite late, sort of Euro-trashed sort of time. And it would be composed of very strange circus acts and then little sort of VTs of people talking about strange things, which I'll talk about in more detail. And then at the end, Simon Drake would do an outrageous magic trick. And that was actually the least part of the show for me, his big outrageous trick. But he'd do things like um, simulate a guillotine, being guillotined and those sort of things. Um, so sort of really hardcore magic that was quite sort of, well, very frightening. But I imagine from a magician's point of view, fairly straightforward. But my favourite things about it were the people who debunked stuff. So the man who was in um, Frank Habagnali, who's the man um, to Catch Me If You Can, he's the basis of that Mm. film. I was so excited when that film came out because I was like, I know him, I know who he is. And he, every episode, he would talk about one of the sort of little tricks he used to get up to and how easy it was to fool people. And you would go, oh gosh, yes, I would be fooled by that too. And it was brilliant. And there was another guy who knew how carnivals worked and how casinos worked. So he taught me, because I watched it a lot, how to deal from the bottom of a deck of cards. And he also showed how they change things in the carnivals so that you can never get the ball in the milk bottle or why you can never got the hoop over the nails. And he actually showed you how they worked. So it was this brilliant kind of dark way of looking behind the scenes of something that was absolutely amazing. But then there would be genuinely interesting people on there, like fakirs, who would literally pull a bit of skin out from their neck and put a a nail through it and they were actually doing that and I loved it I think it was the um I've always had a a side that's very interested in the darker side of people hence the Charles Manson (laughs) book when I was 10 it was very interesting to see a place where those people could be be themselves and where they were accepted and, and indeed applauded and it was an amazing show and for many years, it's interesting you talked about Red Dwarf. I would have an episode of Red Dwarf on a video taped from the telly, followed by an episode of Simon Drake's Secret Cabaret. <laughs> and they would alternate. So for me, they're always very entwined, <laughs> those shows. And I loved it so much. It was brilliant. Well, I think what's interesting is that, you know, you fast forward a couple of years later, there were a lot of things really like it, because it's very much, in terms of the, the illusions and the whole attitude, very much in the style of Darren Brown, Dynamo. Yep. What was, I can't remember his name, Soft Lad that stood on the pole. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. What was it? I can never remember his name. He used yeah. to be in the headlines every day. But... Blaine. David, David Blaine. Blaine. David yes. Blaine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was his greatest trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was that, 
you know, they all, they've all been, despite presenting Haha the Illusion and not being, they've been quite mainstream in what they do. Mm. Whereas the Secret Cabaret was very kind of Nine Inch Nails, industrial goth sort of thing. Completely. I think I remember watching it and thinking, oh no, you know, they're, going to, they're going to cut an emo in half. <laughs> <or something."> <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a genuine sense of danger in it. And they had a live audience, so you would, mm. you would hear these absolutely gasping reactions to people putting a nail through their arms or you know doing um having sex with an angle grinder which isn't quite what they were doing but (laughs) groin angle grinder Mm. stuff and you know it was they're all people you can see in the circus of horrors now if you get to go and see it but it was the first place you kind of saw it on the television and yeah because the jim rose circus were quite big at that point weren't they i mean People acted like that was on the back of grunge, but it was more on the back of stuff like this, I think. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think I think it was the first time I really realised that an alternate, an alternate way of life wasn't actually that difficult to get to. You could get there quite easily. You know, if you could see it on Channel 4, you could see it. It was there. And it's the same with Eurotrash. You know, mm. there was this whole world of people living their lives in a really different way that were just there. They were there and you could go and find them if you wanted. Yeah, but on the other hand, also on Channel 4 around the same time, there was Passengers, which was the self-made fly-on-the-wall documentaries about alternative lifestyles in Europe that was the most boring and pretentious <laughs> programme that has ever existed. <laughs> Genuinely, whenever there's a poll saying, you know, what was the best Channel 4 moment ever? I always reply saying, the worst was anything on Passengers. <laughs> I hated that programme. I looked up what sort of Simon Drake's up to mm. now, but the interesting thing was that one thing I noticed was the first record he ever bought was Fire by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. That surprises it, me in no way. Well, yeah, I immediately thought of Arthur Brown on top of the pops with the flame yep. crown on thought, that is the secret cabaret. Yeah. That whole performance must have like you must have seen that when he was like, I don't know, five or something and thought I'm going to base my life on that. Well, <laughs> even when you see Simon Drake's actual theatrical performances of his tricks, they've got a lot of Arthur Brown in them. There's mm. all of that sort of stuff. And there's that kind of medieval... You see it a lot more now than kind of sort of steampunky ideas and those sort of ideas. You do see a lot of that influence in it now. But at the time, you never saw mm. anything like that. It what? was it was really new. You mentioned the sort of Vox Pop thing. Yeah. What was that all about? Well, there was a guy... It was just brilliant. So one of them, Frank Abagnale, he would just, it would just be like a, a, an interview, like a talking head. And he would talk about one of the specific things he did, a lot of which they said in Catch Me If You Can. But if you read his life story, there was a hundred more of those things that he got up to. So the one that really sticks in my mind is the one where he pretended to be an airline pilot to get free flights, you know. And, I mean, it's outrageous now because of the security (laughs) go through. But even at the time, just... You know, just just by being able to do it at all was incredible. He was literally just flying all over the world because he got a sticker off an Airfix model and put it on, a, on an identity card. And that worked. You know, bought a uniform. In fact, he didn't buy a uniform. He went and stole one from a, the dry cleaners. So that was... His stories were brilliant because it was very sort of... He was being a raconteur. But my favourite guy... I'm sure his name was Ricky Jay. I'm going to say Ricky Jay. And he was Ricky kind of a, Jay, yeah. Yeah, he was yeah. kind of a beardy older man and he just he'd spent his life working out either how to trick people or how to stop himself from being tricked he's an actor as well oh is he he's in Deadwood oh I don't know American guy he is American a lot of the people on that were especially the talking head sort of Mm. people and he would literally go this is why you can't win at a carnival at a carnival you throw balls into a, a bottle the carnival person would show you how it was done and then when you did it, you could never get the ball in. But the carnival person always could. All Ricky pointed out was that he just ever so slightly moved one bottle in front of the other and it just <laughs> took the kinetic energy out of the ball and it's always stopped you winning. And it was just absolutely fascinating. I mean, it just it amazed me that uh, you'd even question some of this stuff. Like, I remember at the time not being very curious about why you never won at the carnival because I always just had so much fun doing it. Although I would really like to know how they trick you in hook a duck. I love the Simon Jay Secret Cabaret and I, I feel like there's never actually been anything quite as good as that on the telly ever since if I can be quite honest those sort of shows now are very very boring and you don't get anything that's truly contentious on the telly anymore but there was stuff on that that was genuinely shocking and frightening and entertaining and I think it's really sad that there isn't that much of that anymore well I think it's some of it is to do with how Channel 4 in particular changed in the, in those days it was the it had to be a good programme first and foremost. And that was how they got the shock in. Yeah. You know, that's how things like the Comics Group Presents got away with what they did, because they were good comedy films. Yeah, completely. With outrageous stuff in. But now, I think... Well, I say now, I think it's been happening for a long time. I think it goes back to when they had live autopsy and things like that. The outrage comes first. 
Yeah. And anything entertaining comes secondary. And I don't think it works that way round. No, I agree. And I think it, the thing about the Simon Drake, I think, was that it was genuinely authentic. The people that were on that show were genuinely doing that stuff. You know, and even, you know, Frank, Frank and Ricky were people who were genuinely fascinated by these things and how they could get away with stuff and actually did it. They weren't doing it for shock value. They are doing it out of curiosity and that was really obvious. And, but you're right, actually. I completely agree with you there. People seem to need to get the shock in place to make you want to watch it and then when you watch it, you're really disappointed. Whereas I think in other ways, that worked the other way around. It was a secret and you only some people watched it and you felt like part of a gang by watching it and the shock was just part of the fun same as it is in a horror film and which side of that fence jonathan ross's saturday zoo <laughs> fell on i'll never be able to work out <laughs> just before you two go there's one last thing that we wanted to bring up which is the real name of mumra from thundercats yes. isn't it is it is it ian mumra <laughs> i i don't know if as a young person i dreamt this I loved Thundercats. Mm. I had a crush on Tigra. I wanted to be Cheetara or Panthro, depending on my mood on that day. I was obsessed with the fact that before Mumra became Mumra, he was like this little mummy thing, wasn't he? He was like yeah. a little weedy thing. And then he becomes this big pout. He becomes Mumra. I was obsessed with the fact that Mumra had a name before he became Mumra. So like Dr. Jekyll is Dr. Jekyll before he becomes Mr. Mm. Hyde. What is Mumra's Dr. Jekyll name? So you don't actually know. No, I've seen something know. indicating it might be... I'll be careful I say this. Waneka. Ooh! So that's... 100%. I will buy anybody that can tell me Mumra's real name a drink. <laughs> Anyone. <laughs> Anywhere in the world, any drink you want. Because <laughs> I'm obsessed with the fact that I think that was the case. But nobody, people who've even watched Thundercats more obsessively than me, agree with me but can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> do you know Jeff? No, I do not. Because <laughs> we established earlier that Jeff knew quite a lot more about the things I could barely remember, <laughs> like in Animal Olympics. <laughs> do you um, know what any of the Robo Burbles were called? That's what I want to know. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, if anyone can put, put a name to Mumra that isn't Mumra, do write in and tell us. Vicky, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, at least it's free. A great big book of articles by Tim Worthington. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk.